I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Lala Wu, the executive director of Sister District Project. I'm so excited about this conversation because Sister District Project was one of the very first organizations that I supported following the 2016 election. And I was really excited to get an update on their progress and to learn more about their accomplishments from the past several years. Lala Wu and I discuss the midterms in 2024. We also talk about Sister District's new projects to help Democrats gain more power and to hold on to the power that they've already won. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Lala Wu. Lala Wu, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So first off, congratulations are in order because you are, although you're the co-founder of Sister District, you're also now in the role, newly in the role as Sister District's first woman of color executive director. Correct. <laughs> That's right. Thank you so much. I uh, take office, if you will, on March 1st. And this is a historic year for first, you know, of course, the obvious one, Vice President Kamala Harris, you know, the first African-American, the first Asian-American woman in that office. Right. And I think New Mexico, I think they became the first state to elect an all women of color, all women of color to its house of delegation, to its house delegation, rather. And there are a lot of other firsts. I can't think of them all, but so it was many. a really good year. <laughs> It has been a really amazing year. And I think one thing that's been particularly amazing is uh, how people really recognize that women of color are leading, you know, this movement and this growth for progressive issues. And you can see it in Arizona and you can see it in Georgia and the expansion of understanding of how women of color are leading the organizing on the ground has been really, really amazing to see. And that's something that we're reflecting in our strategy at Sister District as well. Well, So I'm just curious about your lens as a woman of color and your life experiences. How do you think that will guide your role as executive director? So I'm the daughter of immigrants. And my dad came to Seattle, actually, where you are, um, you know, just days after Mount St. Helens blew up. And basically all he had was, you know, $20 in his pocket and a student visa. So, you know, it must have been wild for him to to try to explore and to find a new place in this very foreign and strange land. Um, you know, he got a part time job with a very wealthy man who insisted that my father call him master, <laughs> you know, and oh my, my <laughs> I know, I know it's, it's hard to understand. And my mom, you know, she was also a student and she worked house cleaning jobs part-time and she's just so sad that she had to bring me with her, you know, in my baby carrier to these strangers homes. And so I really grew up with this, you know, understanding that America is really an amazing place. Right. Like it's in a place that is really worth coming to. It's worth leaving behind everything that, you know, as an adult. I mean, they were in their mid 20s when they came over here. But it's also a place where, you know, white man in Seattle in the 80s can still insist on being called master and where people have to work multiple jobs to feed their families. And I mean, I'm so grateful for the the good luck and the community um, and all of the hard work that my parents put in to create a really amazing life for me. And I'm very, very grateful for that. But I also can't forget how challenging. I know um, uh, it, it is for so, so many people. And I am really driven every day by this desire to help build an America that's as good as my parents thought it could be when they were coming here. 
Wow, that's incredible. You know, I, I, I understand that and I can see how that can inform your role and how that can inform your, your activism. And I think it's so interesting the way that you described your experience here in your life here. You see it as both beautiful and, you know, and, you know, there's lots of opportunity, but then also we have these challenges. And I love that kind of, you know, when people can see both the, the beauty and the challenges in America, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how was 2020 for Sister District? The election, I know that you were working up to that for a long time. How was that for you and for the org? 2020 was remarkable, right? 2020, as you said, there were so many firsts, Madam Vice President Kamala Harris and having Biden win the presidency, having so many millions of Americans show up to vote many for the first time and say, hey, this is what we want our future to be. Um, We reject Donald Trump, but more importantly, we support a vision of an inclusive future, one that has opportunity, healthcare, climate justice, racial justice for all, right? That's that's the direction that we showed the world that we want to go when we elected the Biden-Harris administration. And Sister District was really, really proud to contribute to all of those national wins, uh, especially working in states like Arizona and Michigan and Pennsylvania and in Georgia. You know, these were all states that delivered victories for Biden and that we were super proud to be working in uh, down ballot. As for the races that we were working in, specifically these state legislative races, because that's the focus of what we do at Sister District is build progressive power in state legislatures. Unfortunately, the news down ballot was not as good um, and it is uh, will continue to be picked apart for many months, if not years, what exactly happened. But we unfortunately didn't flip a state chamber that we wanted to flip. You know, we were hoping to go into 2021 redistricting with a lot more majorities so that we could uh, have more of a say in the redistricting process in each of these states. Um, And of course, redistricting is the once every 10 year process that happens with the census, directly following the census that determines the district lines for both state district lines as well as congressional district lines. And Republicans back in 2011, they did a very, very good job of uh, gerrymandering their districts in their favor, basically creating a situation where the Republicans were able to choose their own voters instead of the other way around. So unfortunately, you know, we did not uh, hit the goalpost as we wanted to, but there were some really important victories and we did build a lot of power that uh, we are going to be able to leverage into future wins. So, you know, I want to talk just a couple of the individual success stories that were really exciting. Um, we had Ricky Hurtado become the first Latino representative elected to the North Carolina State House, and he's the only uh, Latino in there right now. Um, and there are over a million Latinos in um, in North Carolina, so that's really remarkable. And Ann Johnson became the first LGBTQ uh, representative in Texas. So that's also really incredibly exciting. And we had so many candidates who are exceptional and really ran amazing campaigns. 
and really should have won, but they, they came short, right? And there are so many reasons for why that was. We weren't able to knock on doors because of the pandemic. Gerrymandering means that it is actually harder to win these races. Trump was at the top of the ticket. There's so many reasons. But, you know, these folks should really run again. And that's often what is true for first time candidates is that they run once, but they need to run again before they can win. So one of the new pieces of our strategy here at Sister District is a program called Future Winners, where we will be supporting some of these candidates to, you know, keep them in the pipeline, give them the skills building and the support they need so that they uh, continue on and do run again when the time is right. Yeah, so I do want to talk to you about that new project in a minute, but I do want to go back to 2020 because, you know, I mentioned this to you offline that, you know, Sister District was one of my, is, is one of my favorite organizations. And I was oh, with you from thanks. the beginning. I signed up in the, <laughs> from the beginning. So I'm really glad to get this update. But, you know, the candidates aside in 2020, I mean, you did have a lot of wins in terms of your organization. I know that you made like nearly a million phone calls. You know, you raised millions for candidates, you know, and that's, that's not nothing. Oh, <laughs> that's, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. But I'm curious, going back to 2020. How did, speaking of those down ballot races, how did Democrats stack up in comparison to Republicans? Do we know how they did in those down ballot races? Yeah. So Republicans uh, did do quite well. And I think that the difference that you will see is that Republicans tend to vote all the way down the ticket, whereas it looks from our initial uh, analysis of the data that's available so far that Democrats often will vote for the top of the ticket. But by the time they get to the state ledge level, they'll stop voting. And that's really unfortunate because the state legislatures are, since you've been with us at the beginning, you know this, the state legislatures are really where the rubber hits the road in terms of policies that impact people's lives, you know, whether it is on, uh, you know, education or transportation or healthcare, so much of how policies get implemented and touch individual people is determined by these state legislators. You know, just think about the access to abortion that is available in California or Washington state where you and I are, as opposed to, you know, Tennessee where you grew up, right? Like there's, there's a huge difference. And a lot of this has to do with who the state legislatures um, are in these states. And so, you know, we, we did make, we had some incredible uh, impact and I'm incredibly proud to say that, you know, since our founding, we've won 70 state legislative elections and did flip five chambers, Blue and directed over three point eight million dollars in grassroots donations to candidates, and you know, and reached out to over three point one million voters through doors and phones and postcards and texts. And I think what I'm especially proud of is that where Sister District endorses, we show up strong. We really have an outsized impact. So, you know, this year we made an average of thirty four percent of our candidates' phone calls, and we raised an average of 10% of our candidates' donations, you know, and that's the kind of outsized impact that we're looking to have where, where we do choose to invest. 
Yeah, you know, I've heard that from a few people now about, you know, the way Democrats vote for down ballot races versus Republicans. I think it's something called like um, ballot drop off. Is that what's happening? Yeah, exactly. Drop off or roll off. And, uh, you know, I think that there's still a lot of interesting research to be done as to why that is. I think that perhaps something has to do with the fact that uh, Republicans tend to be a little bit more party line, a little bit more loyal, a little bit more just happy to get in line and, you know, vote all the way down the ticket. But, you know, I think that a a big part of it and probably the better framing because it uh, really gives us some room for us to think about what we can do to improve is that people don't understand the importance of state legislatures. People don't fully get that these state bodies are so critically important. I mean, you know, remember, it feels like ancient history, but when there was, when the Republicans and Trump were creating and manufacturing a debate about the election results, you know, a big part of it came down to state legislatures and whether state legislatures were going to support the the results of the voters. And then just of last week in Arizona, uh, someone, a Republican introduced a bill that would enable, um, you know, in future elections for the state legislature to go against the will of the voters. You know, <laughs> um, it's really, it's really wild, the kind of power uh, that these legislative bodies have and how people still, uh, I think it's gotten a lot better. People uh, since in the last four years do understand the power of state legislatures more, but they are still much overlooked. Yeah. You know, I think there's an irony in, let's see, how do I want to put this? Republican voters being very um, consistent in voting down ballot and very loyal, like you put it, very loyal in voting for these things that are, or these legislators that are supporting (laughs) anti-democratic, you know, ideas. Like, you know, I know that they've jumped right in and they've, you know, started to, to push through things that would um, reduce voter access, right? Will restrict voter access. And so their voters are very are very loyal to voting for these things that would kind of decrease actually their access to the ballot as well. And right. so I think there's an irony there and I don't really fully understand it. But do you think what's lacking on our side, and I know that there's some research that needs to be done, is like this, you know, an elevator pitch saying, you know, like if you vote down ballot, this means this for, you know, reproductive justice. This means this for your access to reproductive health care or health care generally or your voting rights. So the elevator pitch for state legislatures in our minds, it really has four quick points. And each of these can be dug into. And I suggest if you are practicing this pitch that you can, you know, dig into each one depending on the person that you're talking to. But really, state legislatures are important because of policy. Right. If you care about what's going on in your community, if you care about your health and your family's health and your businesses and the education of your children and the water that they drink and the air that they breathe, you have to care about state legislatures. It's really where the rubber hits the road when it comes to policy. And second is the leadership pipeline. You know, almost half of our sitting presidents once served as state legislators and the ability to govern and build coalitions is something that you can learn so well at state legislatures and something that Republicans have been very, very good at doing in building this pipeline uh, in order to develop their leaders. And we have been tardy to the party and we really need to catch up here. 
And third, state legislatures are a vital key for voting rights. And if you care about voter suppression, this idea that every citizen in this country should have the ability to vote and that their vote should be counted just like everyone else's, then you have to care about state legislatures. You know, and a big part of this, of course, is gerrymandering. And in most states, it's state legislatures that control redistricting. And that is really true and super important. But there's also all kinds of voting rights that are enacted and decided on by state legislatures. And we can see right now in Georgia what is going on there, which is the Republicans who are very upset by the fact that they lost the state. They want to change the rules because they know they can't win. So they are trying to get rid of no excuse absentee voting. They are trying to get rid of drop boxes. They are trying to get rid of all of these types of mechanisms that enable people to vote, that enabled the victories that happened in November. And, you know, our margins in Georgia, they were on our side, but they were small. And these kinds of laws, this kind of erosion of voting rights that's being introduced not only in Georgia, but all over, you know, in Pennsylvania and Michigan, you name it. These are going to have a direct impact on how we can win power and whether everybody is enfranchised as they deserve to be. Finally, I have to say that state legislatures are an amazing bang for your buck. It is an incredibly high, we believe the highest return on your investment, if you will, for your volunteer hours or your dollars. Whereas a, you know, presidential or congressional or Senate race, something like that, those cost millions and millions of dollars. But these state legislative races, sometimes they'll only cost $40,000, $100,000. You know, as I mentioned earlier, Sister District made an average of 34% of our candidates' phone calls, which in this year during the pandemic, I mean, that was the majority of the field program, right? We weren't able to go knock on doors. And then we raised almost an average of 10% of our candidates' total donations. And so you know that if you donate to a state legislative race, you're going to have an outsized impact because your $20 actually could make the difference. I mean, the margins in these races are so, so tiny. Of course, I think about Shelly Simons, who in 2017 literally lost her race by a single vote, you know, and that stood out because it was so, so dramatic. And there is good news that she came back and we supported her again in 2019 and she won and helping to deliver a Virginia trifecta for Democrats. You know, it's not uncommon to see margins that are, you know, double digits, 10 votes, 14 votes, 300 votes, right? This is the kind of thing that happens in state legislatures. So it's a policy pipeline, the leadership pipeline. They're vital key to voting rights, and it's a really high return on your dollar, your hour. Right. That's a really hard thing to put into an elevator pitch. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's true. It's true. It's true. But, you know, I think that the, the elevator pitch is really that if you care about any aspect of policy, uh, the where you're really going to find where the rubber hits the road is at the state legislative level. And I think that maybe that is what's difficult about it as well, is that it's helpful to to tailor it for, um, you know, what issues people really care about. Because that's something that's true on the left as well, is that people on the left really are often driven by specific issues, you know, um, that they really do care, for example, about reproductive health. And I think, you know, if we want to dig into that one for a second, we can say that the Republicans have introduced all kinds of heartbeat bills. 
right? Where um, this idea that as soon as you can see the sort of um, the, the, the indication that there is some kind of something that will become a heartbeat, uh, then, then abortion is no longer legal, right? Republicans have introduced bills to uh, require funerals for abortions, right? And like trying to change that kind of culture around, um, around it from a medical procedure to something else. And there's a lot of bills that are being introduced right now. You know, there's one in South Carolina, for example, where their Republicans are fast tracking it to effectively ban basically all abortions at, you know, basically at about six, six weeks. And that's just, I mean, I can't even tell you how horrifying that is to me. Um, and I'm sure it is, it is for you as well. Yeah. I mean, most people don't know that. I mean, we know the statistic, right? But most people don't know that they're pregnant then. Exactly. Six weeks, right. I mean, yeah, that's absurd. Exactly. Right. And it's so funny. And I, God, I have so much to say about that because just five years ago, even, you know, maybe 10 years ago, but sooner than that, that would have been appalling to most people, like Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, the, and I should also say that another reason that state legislatures are so critically important is because they build the pipeline of our leaders for the future. And almost half of our past presidents got their start in state legislatures and served in state legislatures. And what this means is that they not only know how to win elections, but they know how to build governing coalitions and majorities and get legislation passed. And so Republicans are very good at building a deep bench wherever they are. And Democrats are tardy to the party, you know, and need to be able to keep up there as well and grow our farm team the same way that the Republicans do and to catch up there. There's a lot of catching up to do. So, yeah, <laughs> I like that tardy to the party. I'll have to use that somehow. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but I'll, I'll say two final things about that. Speaking of elevator pitches, um, Latasha Brown, the founder, one of the co-founders of Black Voters Matter, she had a really great kind of quick phrase that she tells people when they say, you know, oh, I don't care about, you know, this race or I don't care about politics or down ballot races. She tells them that, well, you do care about your life. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're actually voting for your life. Right. So explaining it in that way was just so, so crystal clear for so me. Powerful. Right? Yeah, it was really powerful. And then your example with California and their emission standards was a really good example because, you know, here in Washington state, we were the first state to pass the $15 minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Right. And so look at what's happening now. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You see people looking to pass a $15 minimum wage in states across the country. And not only that, you know, there's a movement to do it at the federal level as well, which, you know, President Biden has expressed his support for, which is, this is the kind of power that state legislatures can have. Yeah. I'm still thinking of like, you know, what you can put on a t-shirt. And if I figure that out, I will send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. So far, um, uh, we also put state legislatures are sexy on a t-shirt, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're, we'll we'll uh, continue to work on that one, though. <laughs> so um, you have a new program called State Bridges. Can you tell me what that is? Yes. So State Bridges is a really exciting new program. We are thrilled to launch this year. And the idea behind it is to direct some of our grassroots fundraising resources directly to organizations on the ground 
in the states where we are working to build power. So this includes, for example, New Virginia Majority, which is an organization that's been around in Virginia, unsurprisingly, since 2007. And their whole theory of change is to engage people of color as voters, as people who are civically engaged in their process, um, in power building and legislation and policy making in their state. And that kind of deep year round engagement and community building is what was able to set the stage for a democratic trifecta flip in 2019. You know, that kind of um, the same kind of power that delivered the Senate through Georgia, you know, was because of Latasha Brown and Stacey Abrams and Nse Ufot and a decade of work, over a decade of work on the ground, deep organizing in these communities. And so, you know, what we recognize here at Sister District is that the work we do is critically important. These state legislative races continue to be as important as they are, still overlooked and under-resourced. And we do need to provide support directly to these candidates in these critical times with fundraising, with phone banking, with door knocks, et cetera, to help get them across the finish line. But, you know, these candidates won't have a chance unless we are also building this power year round and the organizing happens by people who are from these communities. And, you know, we recognize a sister district that we can't do all of these things and that we're not from some of these communities. You know, we are largely an export capacity organization and recognizing those limits. We asked ourselves, well, what can we do here? And what we can do is we can support these organizations on the ground that are doing this good work. You know, and of course, we would love to volunteer for them if we can, but we'll wait for them to tell us if they want us to do that. Right. Like what we do know we can do is we can direct funds to them so that they can pay their organizers living wages and so that they can keep up their good work that they know how to do so well. And it's extremely complementary to our electoral work. I think that's beautiful. Actually, I think that's really great. And it sounds like you're you know, kind of employing that Stacey Abrams playbook, which is really exciting. That's Exactly right. We are very proud to be taking a page out of that playbook. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep it secret because, you know, I don't want any Republicans to pick that up. <laughs> anyway, um, but I do want to go back to your program titled Future Winners, right? So this is where you take candidates who've run already and, you know, they may have lost or, you know, barely lost and you're kind of reintroducing them or keeping them in the pipeline. What's that about? Yeah, that's exactly right. So with future winners, we are identifying exceptional candidates who lost, but who should run again. And uh, oftentimes what happens is that candidates will run for the first time and they don't quite make it across the finish line, but they've built all of this amazing capital. They know how to run a campaign now. They understand what it takes and they've got some more name recognition. And it would be such a shame for them not to run again. And unfortunately, a lot of people do drop out of the pipeline at this time because it's a huge sacrifice to make to run for um, these races. And then even when you do run, you know, I mentioned 
um, uh, the North Carolina legislator, Ricky Hurtado, earlier, Representative Ricky Hurtado, he was telling us during our summit yesterday, our, we had our annual sister district summit, that the annual salary for um, a representative in North Carolina is only $15,400, something like that, right? It's very, very, very low. So, and it's, it's the same story across uh, the country. These state legislators are paid very, very little. And so the reward is not super great on the on the back end. And they have to work other jobs. They have to juggle childcare, other work to survive. And the campaigns are really hard. And so it's a lot to ask of somebody to run for office. And it's not a surprise that many people drop out. So what we're trying to do with future winners is identify those candidates who lost by only a little bit, you know, who did come very, very close, but who we can then support um, with different kinds of trainings. We're working, uh, we're talking with a number of partners right now about helping to provide different kinds of trainings about communications, about strategy, about, hey, are you running for the right office? You know, should you run for actually a local office that might be more suited to what your goals are, or actually maybe in higher office, you know, and how do you build that plan? What can you do in this meantime? And we also want to provide that community and emotional support. Um, it can be really lonely to run for office. And one thing that we want to do is to provide folks connections with each other so that we can start to build kind of that old boys club, but in a good way, right? Um, to build that backroom connection where people can not only collaborate, but can conspire and can, cons and can support each other. And I will say also that it's very common for people who run for office the first time to not win and they need to run again um, to win again. But this is especially true for women, people of color. And so we're especially excited to be launching this program because of that. Yeah, I was going to say that I was wondering if there was any data on, you know, whether it was primarily women and or people of color, because I, I know I've interviewed, you know, several candidates and, you know, sometimes when they lose their races, you, they just kind of drop off and you don't hear from them again. And one of the things I ask them about is, you know, what it's like on the campaign trail, you know, for a woman or as a person of color. And I know that it can be particularly bruising. For them, like it's running for office, it's hard generally, but, you know, for those marginalized groups, it's even it's even harder, you yeah. know, and I think that, you know, unless you're really high profile, like Beto O'Rourke or something like that, <laughs> you know, there isn't a lot of incentive, you know, for you to get back in. But it makes sense to leverage all of their experience. It makes sense to start there from as opposed to just starting from the beginning. So, yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm curious for the activists that are listening or organizers or even constituents, you know, how do you encourage them to keep the momentum going into, you know, the next the next midterms, right? Or, you know, the next races or for their local races? You know, there are so many reasons to continue to keep it up. And the primary one is that we still don't have the world that we want to see, right? We have a vision of the world as we want it to be. And it doesn't exist yet. You know, there's still so much that we want to do. We we still have voter suppression. We still have gerrymandering. We still don't have, you know, universal access to high quality health care. We still don't have common sense gun safety, safety legislation for everyone. There's still so much that needs to get done to get us to the world that we know we deserve, our children deserve. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the, the big thing that keeps me motivated is our vision does not yet match the reality. But I, you know, there's also a few other ways to, um, a few other things to think about here, which is that first, 
movements take time, right? And that I, the one thing that I, I read somewhere that I really love is that the GOP is on year 39 of a 40-year plan, but Democrats are on year four, you know? <laughs> so, so if you, you know, consider like women's suffrage and civil rights, LGBTQ rights, et cetera, this, all of these movements took decades, you know, many decades. And we accomplished a lot by electing Biden and Harris. And that's wonderful. But there's still a lot more work that we need to do, especially in the States. You know, and I and I love this a lot. I was chatting with my team about this. And um, my co-founder, Liz, was saying, well, really, what we should be asking ourselves is what would Stacy do? You know, <laughs> what would Stacy do? Is Stacy Abrams going to be satisfied by what we have right now? You know, is she like, okay, I, I worked so hard with all of these people, black and brown women, people of color organizers on the ground to deliver Georgia for the Senate and for the presidency. Is she done? Is she quitting? No, of course not. You know, <laughs> there's still so much, so much more to do. And I, uh, you know, and I think that another thing to remember is that the Republicans are going to go even harder. And especially because there is a democratic trifecta, the Republicans are not going to be able to advance their agenda so easily at the federal level. And so they're going to work aggressively to advance their agenda at the state level. And they're also going to work aggressively to take back the house in 2022, which uh, you know, is traditionally in these midterm years, um, uh, the the president's party loses a lot of ground. So we, you know, don't want to take that kind of conventional wisdom and just accept it. We want to fight against it and we want to do what we can. But we do understand that that is the kind of historical context that we are, those kinds of historical patterns that we're, that we're working with. Well, Lala Wu, thank you so much for all of your work. I truly appreciate you. I truly appreciate Sister District. And, you know, we'll be watching what you do for the next coming years. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. 